Do you like our cactus? Oh, I love the cactus. Because <laughs> it was Dan, actually. He said, he said, when I think of uncomfortable, I think of a cactus. I don't know where his brain yeah. goes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he sat on one once. Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. It's no secret that creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. So why uncomfortable? Well, simply, I don't feel we have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. We leave so much left unsaid. And let's be frank, you don't grow or learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. I honestly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. So love that I get to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is Mark Hicks. Celebrated chef, restaurateur, food writer, Mark is known for his original take on British gastronomy. With an unrivaled knowledge of ingredients with provenance, he is an award-winning author and food writer with 12 cookbooks to his name. For many years, he was food writer of The Independent on Saturday, and he now has a regular column in The Telegraph, Dorset magazine, and a weekly cookery show on Lime Bay Radio. After 17 years with Caprice Holdings, he left his chef director role in 2007 to open Hicks Restaurants, which spread across London's West End and City, as well as his native Dorset, until they closed in 2020. And he was recently appointed director of food and drink at London's Groucho Club, where the food is absolutely delicious. Mark received an MBE for his services to hospitality and perhaps most impressive to me personally as a diehard fan of the show was the winner of the second ever series of Great British Menu. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Mark. It's great to have you here. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) With your stargazing pie? Stargazing pie, yes. Everyone remembers that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I love that show. So, Mark, are you sitting uncomfortably? Staring at the cactus, yeah. So what career you've had, I could have actually continued writing so much more, but I wanted us to have a conversation and not take up all the space. (laughs) (laughs) But really, it's uh, incredible. So what do you think your defining moment has been? Oh, defining. I've had lots of defining moments and redefining moments in my life and career. I don't know. It's interesting because I've sort of made a good go of it career wise, you know, sort of coming from Dorset choosing to do domestic science over metalwork because me and a couple of mates thought we'd been in a classroom full of girls and then all the, all the girls decided to do metalwork because they'd been in a classroom full of boys. And um, that sort of... That explains a lot, Mark. <laughs> there was just three of us and the teacher. So from, from then, you know, still not knowing what to do with the rest of my life, my dad's friend who had a restaurant in town called Hamish suggested to my dad to take me to Weymouth Catering College, which I did, and had a good laugh for a couple of years, had a really good lecturer called Laurie Mills. And he, I suppose he was the person that really persuaded me to go to London because he worked in London and was always talking about London and he'd moved to Dorset. 
So that was um, my sort of get up and go, let's go to London. And so when did you really get the, the bug for cooking? So you came to London. Did you know then that that was the future for yeah, you? Yeah, well, I'd, so I worked at the Gravener House and the Dorchester, you know, did the usual five-star hotel restaurant thing. And then I went to work in this little restaurant in the city where I got a bit of a reputation. And, and then my fishmonger phoned me one day and said, oh, there's a job going as head chef at the Caprice. I didn't really know what the Caprice was back then. And you couldn't Google in those days. <laughs> so you had to go, I had to go down and get a, get a guidebook from the bookshop around the corner and then phoned a few people. And back then, the Caprice was one of those very visionary, simple restaurants that catered for people in media, film, music. I suppose it was equivalent of a... A canteen, you know, all the Condonas crowd used to use it at lunches and people used to hire and fire there. And after half a dozen interviews, I got the job. So that was probably one of the most important parts of my career, working for two sort of legendary restaurateurs and having the opportunity to cook at the Caprice. And they just bought the Ivy at that point as well. And you shaped a lot of the menus and dishes, Yeah, so 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 not... Um, that long into being at the Caprice, they then asked me if I'd um, look after the ivy. And at this point, I was like sort of late 20s. So I thought, yeah, you know, the ivy is, you know, historic building. And they sort of liked, you know, the food I was cooking and they wanted to do this sort of big menu that was international, lots of different influences, which I understood. So, yeah, so I then become... Uh, chef director of both the Ivy and the Caprice, you know, which were probably the the buzziest restaurants in London because there wasn't there was only probably a handful of restaurants that people talked about or went to for high powered lunches or after theatre or pre theatre. That must have been difficult to run two very busy restaurants. Yeah, it was. I mean, I had a good team because they they were the sort of busiest restaurants in town at the mm. time. And I had no experience whatsoever in running one big busy restaurant, let alone two. But I think a lot of it is about your approach on it and personality, maybe, and surrounding yourself with good people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's all about surrounding yourself with good people. So what do you think people misunderstand about you most? That's a very good question, Jim. I think I'm, you know, I think I'm probably misunderstood a lot, but I think people that know me understand exactly what I am and who I am. I think people that don't know me probably misunderstand me. So I suppose over the years I've I've sort of learnt to just be gentle and quiet and get on with it in order that people can understand me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And also because I write about food and have done lots of books, I suppose it's easier to put your thoughts onto paper. I spent a year during lockdown doing the Telegraph column, mm. which was literally the backstory and how I was getting through the pandemic, if you like. That was a good way to have a voice mm. through that tough time that everyone had. And I suppose in some ways I was representing the industry and lots of other people in business that couldn't voice their opinion about their businesses going bankrupt or going bust. So, yeah, it was a good opportunity for me to speak up. 
Yeah, because it was, I mean, it was tough for everyone. It was such a, I almost don't want to use the word unprecedented because it's kind of overused, but it was such an unprecedented time. But for the hospitality industry. Yeah, it's a shocker. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, having my own business, fairly new business partners, it was a bit of a shock when I was told before lockdown was even announced that they wanted to put my business into administration. And the worst bit for me was having to, group all of my 140 staff together and tell them that the restaurants were not going to be open anymore and they were going to lose their jobs and not get paid anything. Yeah. I sort of naturally accepted, OK, I've lost my part of the business and I'm going to have to start again from scratch, doing whatever that might be. But a lot of people might, might have flaked and sort of reacted or got depressed about it, so I had to just get on with it and think positively gosh that must have been such a difficult thing to do you were like a family to your your team right yeah it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do I gathered all of them together in the tram shed because that was a big building and I had a tear in my eye it was very difficult conversation and sort of halfway through and Dina who was one of my managers who ended up coming to work for me in Dorset sort of took over and got up and spoke on my behalf, which was lovely, because it's quite nice when something like that comes from one of your team as well, talking to the rest of the team. At that point, she could see that I was finding it a bit tricky to, you know, relay my thoughts. I was as much, much in shock still then as, the, you know, the rest of the team. Uh, so it was really nice that she spoke and then someone else spoke, sort of reiterating that it wasn't, my doing, it was the business partners. So. And she didn't even know about it, so she did that on the spot? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was It was that day or the evening before that I told her the news. So, so how did you approach that initial conversation with Adina? That must have been hard. Yeah, it was. I, I, I sort of got the managers together first and told them what, what happened, the conversation over the phone the day before. I suppose ordinarily there would have been a board meeting to discuss it, but the board meeting happened after I was told about the administration thing. Uh, So it wasn't a decision-making board meeting because I would have been obviously outnumbered because I'd have been the only member. So that was, yeah, that was tough. And in some ways it was easier for me to tell, you know, the management team first than it was to tell all the other members of staff, you know, face-to-face. And how did you ensure you didn't get depressed about it? Because there must have been some tough times. Yeah, I I suppose, you know, I was lucky enough, I had a house in Dorset, which is very close to the Oyster and Fish House, my restaurant. So I, I basically camped out there for a couple of years, really. And then first week in, when it had finally sunk in that I didn't have a business anymore, I went on my favourite place to go eBay so I had a bottle of <laughs> bottle of wine <laughs> fag in my hand <laughs> looking at the sea thinking right what am I going to do so I went on eBay and thought maybe a food truck because I don't know what the future of restaurants is going to be they're closing left right and centre yeah. so I, I, I googled for food trucks and this American converted Chevrolet ambulance popped up and I put a bid in for half the price and I bought it for something like eight grand or whatever, ten grand. Oh my and it's all kitted out. So I went to London, collected it. And then once I collected it, I thought, you know, what am I actually going to 
do with this thing. I'm sort of friendly with lots of the local fishermen and they had nowhere to sell their fish and it was one of the best summers ever. So I suddenly thought, OK, I'm going to buy as much fish as I can from the fishermen and sell it to the locals. And I put the van in the local farm shop in their car park. So that's what I did for a couple of years. And then I got Jezza to help me, who was my head chef at the fish house, who was obviously jobless. And we would just work it together. And then we started doing little snacks with all the fish trimmings. We're charging, you know, fairly decent money for it because mm-hmm. no one really, you know, I had to give the fishermen good money because they were losing out, you know, through not having anywhere to sell their fish and then passing that on to the customers. And it was busy. I mean, I remember the first week after I'd paid all the fishermen, me and Jez had, I think, £350 each after we paid. And it was, you know, it's nothing, really. I, I used to earn more than that when I was 21 years old. But we looked at it and thought, oh, you know, it's quite nice to have some cash. It's something, though, isn't hand. it? Let's go to the pub, you know, <laughs> which is what we did. Yeah, but the pubs weren't open. No, they. It was just. <laughs> it was just when there was a couple of them, you could only drink outside. Outside, yeah. Yeah. I love that story so much. And where's your food truck now? Well, I'm just about to sell it, actually, because I bet for more I'm than sort of too busy now to you know to <laughs> do a food truck. So I'm just about to sell it for a fraction of the price that I bought it for. Anyway, it's just one less thing that I need to worry about. Because there's a few things that you need to think about. But you were able to keep your name because I know as part of the going into administration, part of that was. Yeah so I, I, yeah, so I basically sold my name, or most of it, to my business partners. So, of course, when the business went into administration, the name Hicks was a part of the, the business, so that went into administration, so I had to buy my name back from the administrators, which you know, feels a bit odd, but I, I got it yeah. for a fraction of the price that I'd sold it for. So Selling my name is the only time I've really ever made any money in business. <laughs> It's a good name. And then I had to buy it back. <laughs> it's crazy, the concept that you have to buy your own name back. It is, but what are they going to do with it? Because yeah, no. H-I-X is not a very common name. So. No, it's a good name. So I guess that leads me nicely on to what makes you really uncomfortable? Well, apart from what I've just discussed, that was one part of being uncomfortable. And, and, I, and particularly just... Yeah, losing, the, the, you know, losing the business and telling the staff and it would have been slightly different if... I'd have had immediate jobs for them all, but I only really had jobs for a small percentage. And it, it wasn't like I could phone my mates and say, can I send some of my staff to your restaurant? Because everywhere was closed. Yeah. But they couldn't benefit from furlough, could they? No, that wasn't even eligible at that point because they were redundant. Yeah. So, and then a series of things have happened since then. So I, you know, I managed to buy the fish house back, which was great. My uh, my landlords who live next door, I've known since I was a young kid growing up in West Bay. So they've been fantastic landlords. And it is an incredible place. So Yeah, so I had a ready-made business. And then during lockdown, when you know they allowed outdoor seating, the local council allowed me to put this decking up in this useless piece of land, which was like basically two hedges with a slope in between them. And which no one ever used. And when it comes to reapplying for planning to keep the deck, there were certain council members that didn't approve. The majority of the council were kind of on my side, including the mayor and the town clerk, etc. And then there was sort of half the council members objected. 
So there's this battle going on at the moment. The general public and the, the local residents have put a petition together, which is gaining momentum by the minute. The last time I looked this morning, it was 8,000, which is about three times the population of Lyme Regis. It's amazing. But that doesn't really make any difference to the council decision. But why would it be that they want to shut it down? Because I read that it, they said it's it's public property. It's public yeah, space. well, it's, 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 it's a piece of public land which never gets used. And it looks now like it's a part of the restaurant. It's like a sort of L shape, I suppose. I've made an offer of paying them rent for a piece of land that would never normally get rent. Over the years, people coming to visit the restaurant, uh, there's a car park at the top, which used to be a pound a day, and now it's £8 a day, which is owned by the council. We worked out that I've probably generated about half a million quid car parking alone, people coming to visit the restaurant. I've employed lots of young local people, given them jobs and experience. If the locals had to vote for it, uh, then, you know, it wouldn't be an issue. But unfortunately, there's like six or seven maybe councillors who've never been to the restaurant. They haven't got local businesses, as far as I know, in the town. Why would they be anti-tourism, giving young people jobs and bringing people to the area? I'm also supporting B&Bs and hotels because they need to send their guests to places. But for some reason, these councillors don't seem to understand that what I'm doing is not anything bad. I'm, I'm actually doing good things for the the actual town itself. So true. So how do you cope with what feels like constant setbacks and things like this happening to you, especially when it's been a really tough time in, in the hospitality industry? Yeah, I suppose you just have to keep your head down and keep positive and don't give up because there's always something around the corner. The most recent thing that has come up, and maybe this is a, a turning point for me, is some old friends, Ivan and Manuela Worth from House of Worth, gallery started a sort of sector called the art farm which is hospitality and they brought the Groucho club back in yes. august yeah and my old friend who was a business partner of mine in in the restaurants hicks restaurants went to work for them he used to run fortnum and mason selfridges so he's gone and worked for ivan and manuela uh, and he's a part of art farm and how's worth and I was sort of waiting for the phone call a little bit, really. And the phone did go and he said, look, I said, yeah, OK. <laughs> and so it, it, yeah, so something has come back in my favour, if, if you like. So when you say waiting for the phone call, you mean for Groucho and for that offer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which as a member, I almost can't remember a time when you weren't there. Like, it feels like you've absolutely transformed the place. Yeah, I'd like to think that. And, you know, it started off as a bit of a part-time couple of days a week role. But as you know, I'm there every day of the week exactly what it needs to get on board with the whole team get them trained up get the members confident so it's um work in progress really and i think it's you know that's paying off so when i googled you even though i know you i googled you next to the the word uncomfortable and quite a few search terms came up and what i saw in the articles you're so honest and open and if you don't agree with something, you say, I didn't agree with that and that wasn't my decision and I want to make that clear. Mm. 
Yeah, well, there's no point in pulling the wool over people's eyes, is it, really? I remember I, I think I had four restaurants and I used to do staff inductions where new members of staff every couple of weeks would sit in a room and I'd do sort of PowerPoints of all the different restaurants and a bit of history and stuff. And I'd opened... My friend who had, you know, sort of little boutique hotels in New York had been asked to manage the hotel in Belgravia. And he said, you know, do you want to do the restaurant and bar there? So I said, yes. And we were 10 or 11 months in losing money. I think we'd lost 800000 in 10 months. And so I said to the landlord of the hotel, listen, you know, I need to throw the towel in. I can't. I can't continue trading and losing money. But I used to show Hicks Belgravia in this PowerPoint and then the staff used to look and say, well, where's that then? And I said, well, the reason I'm showing this is because I made a very bad business decision. And, you know, for those of you that might open your own business one day, think twice or three times about it. So I continued always showing a restaurant that had failed in a hotel to my staff inductions. I love that. I love that because you learn so much, I think, from, from Failure. your failures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you they... become wiser. Well, I keep saying that. But... <laughs> do you think you're wiser now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you think are some of the uncomfortable truths of the hospitality industry? Is there anything about the industry that makes you feel particularly uncomfortable? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, when I had Hick Soho, The landlord, who was the university pension fund or something like that, decided to double the rent. You know, I was struggling a bit in Soho as it was to even break even. And suddenly when the landlord puts your rent up from 250 to half a million, that means you have to find not an extra 250, but four times that to actually fund the extra 250 grand Mm. rent increase so things like that make me feel uncomfortable because landlords especially in London need to almost have that idea of being business partners with their tenants quite a few you know when when Ewan was at Selfridges we had a very good deal there where it was a sort of turnover based rent with a management fee and that worked for both sides you know when the restaurant was doing well you know that means Selfridges got more rent when we weren't doing so well, you know, they got less. And I think more landlords should be thinking like that now. Unfortunately, you know, when during lockdown and lots of places were closed, suddenly those landlords had egg on their face because it was touch and go whether those businesses would actually even reopen or whether they could find new tenants to go into those spaces. And some of the landlords were still charging people, which is shocking, I think, during lockdown. I think quite a few landlords are doing that now. You know, they're doing more of a turnover-based rent thing. And what do you think you've learned from your most uncomfortable moments, which, as we've discussed, you've had a few? I suppose it's you have to sort of think twice about it all the time. I, I would recommend to anyone who's going to go into business and go into a building, I, I would also say to them, check out the landlord, get to know them a bit. And even when you do know them, you know, and I can talk from experience now, they're not always going to be great landlords. And also, it feels like you've also learned that there's always another way, that things turn a corner and you've got to stay positive. It feels like you're very half full, which is 
which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. You live and learn, I think. Yeah. You're feeling half full today? <laughs> <laughs> After breakfast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for us to get uncomfortable? If I am feeling uncomfortable about something, I don't always voice it or show it, maybe. I don't generally get too stressed out about stuff. I sort of keep it within most of the time, which is good and bad, I think. A lot of people said, hey, you should express it. And I, I said, well, how am I supposed to express it? I, I don't want other people to be affected by what I'm thinking or going through. So I, I suppose, yeah, a lot of the time I do sort of keep troubles within. But why why wouldn't you share it with other people? Because I'm sure that they'd want to help you and also they might learn from your experience Yeah, as I mean, well. I, yeah, yeah there's, there's a few people that I do share things with or they extract stuff from me because they know me well enough to be able to do that. But generally I won't sort of share, I, I know I'm sharing stuff now actually. So I love. <laughs> to the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you. And um, it's, I felt really inspired by your journey and your stories and the constant that I feel is you never stop, you keep going and you're not going to let things hold you back, which is really lovely. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, probably a lesson that I've learnt difficult lesson over the years maybe but you never stop learning so true you never stop learning so I think that's a great place to end so I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a fresh air production and the producers are Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh we're new on the scene so if you enjoyed this podcast then please do me a massive favour and follow us recommend us and all that good social stuff the bigger the following the more opportunity to have the best guests and I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with incredible people like Mark thank you so much Until next time.